The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 27. And today we begin what I think is the most difficult part of this book. Um, I've been preaching Matthew now for over six years, and I can honestly say that working on this particular part has really been the most difficult part by far for me. As I began the study of Matthew, I dreaded the day, actually, that we would have to come to this place where I would have to sit down and then make the points to outline a sermon or many sermons about the crucifixion of Christ. And we all knew that it had to come to this time because we could never speak of the satisfaction of Christ in any meaningful way unless we deal with the agonizing death that he experienced on the cross. And not only must a minister speak of his death, but he has to describe the most agonizing death of all uh, that anyone has experienced. And he knows that he, as he does that, uh, all the wrath that was poured out was on the one that the minister, the one who has to talk about this, the one that he most deeply loves. And while it's true that there were thousands and thousands who experienced crucifixion in the time of Christ, yet there's no one that experienced what Jesus went through. There's no one that ever experienced the desertion of all of their friends as he did, and yet still he loved the enemies that crucified him. There's none that experienced the breaking of the eternal bond with his father, the abandonment of his father. There was none that faced the fury of hell that Jesus experienced while he hung on the cross. All of God's fury was unleashed upon Jesus, and all of these things happened in his death. And this text is also difficult because in the description of it, I, I feel as if I'm competing with Hollywood. I, I never actually seen very much of the film that Mel, Mel Gibson made, The Passion of the Christ. Um, I've been told that it was a very accurate portrayal of death by crucifixion. I think it had many, many, many shortcomings. And just as a side note, uh, that film was quickly forgotten, even though it was proclaimed at the time to be the most effective evangelistic tool that the world has ever seen. But the problem is that Hollywood movies are not the way that God intended to bring people to Christ. And depictions of Christ in portraits and films and crucifixes, crucifixes are all violations of the second commandment. But describing the crucifixion is, in words alone is very difficult because many people already have a visualization of it. And there's just no way that I could take the words here, what little is given in Scripture, and try to explain it to you. And I'm not so sure many times if that is exactly what God wants us to do, because the awful descriptions of what happened at the cross are not actually found in the Bible. The Bible doesn't give us very many details, and there's practically no time spent explaining the torture of the cross. And I think that's probably due, uh, due to the fact that first century Christians experienced it. They saw the cross. They saw thousands of crosses. So they didn't really need anybody to tell them how horrible that it was. I mean, Rome wanted them to see it. Rome wanted to see what happens to you when you defy their authority. 
And so here in the Gospel of Matthew, the most important event in the history of the world is reduced to just one comment in verse number 35 where it says, And they crucified him. There's not one word of the look on his face and the agony that he experienced as they drove the nails into his hands and his feet. And here in the preliminaries of the crucifixion that we'll speak of today, there's nothing said here about what the beatings did to him. Nothing is said that he almost died under the torture or what his back looked like when he was whipped or what his face looked like when he was beaten and all the other agonies were inflicted on him. We're left to supply those details or enhance them from what we can read in the Gospels and from Old Testament Scriptures. And sometimes I do wonder, should we really go that deep? Does, does the Word of God intend for us to go that deep? And maybe the only reason that we do is because the cross of Christ is, or the cross itself has been so sanitized today that we only think of it as a piece of jewelry. So I looked at this text and I wondered about this and I agonized over it. What should I say? How should I preach about the death of cross, the, the, of the cross, the preliminaries to it? And I'm not sure that what I'm, what I have to say here is what needs to be said or all that should be said. It's certainly not. And I don't know how to make the most significant event in all the history of the world just leap out from the pages of the Bible and speak to your heart. And I'm thankful that I'm not the one that has to do that. Because there's nobody who can be made to care about this at all. The only way that it means anything to you if God, is if God's Holy Spirit should take the word as it's preached and apply it to your heart. And God does that as he sees fit. So I'm not going to be caught up in too many elaborate descriptions today. I don't have any kind of demonstration for you. I just want to unfold the story as Matthew does and progress through the narrative for... Uh, for a few minutes here of these hours that happened about this same time or season of the year 2,000 years ago. So today we're going to look at the first part of the crucifixion. This is actually the preparation for it. And we have to remember that the sufferings of the cross were not confined to the cross itself. But before Jesus was put on that cross, there was much physical, mental, and emotional, and even spiritual suffering that Jesus went through. Now, if you look at your Bible in Matthew chapter 27, and let, let's just go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word, if you would. Matthew 27, and, and I have verse 26 noted, but let's just back up a little bit to verse number 24, if you would. Matthew 27 and verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather that a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person, see ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head and after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him 
they compelled to bear his cross. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Open up your word to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If we could backtrack just a little bit in the story, we realize that the events leading up to the cross progress very quickly. And you might not think that because in preaching these last few chapters of Matthew, I've taken 18 months to go through the story. Uh, One week in Jesus' life actually takes up one-fourth of the Gospel of Matthew, and we've just sort of reciprocated that time period by spending so much time on this very last week. From the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem in chapter 20 to this part where we are now in chapter 27, only five days have passed. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem to a crowd that cheered him, and then he died to a crowd that disdained him, and it only took five days to go from adoration to condemnation. Oh, there were tensions that heightened during the week. You remember how that Jesus went into the temple and there he threw out those that were extorting people from, uh, of their money from changing money and from buying the sacrifices there in the temple. And Jesus very severely chastised the religious leaders when he said that they had made his house a den of thieves. And that was more or less the, the last straw for the religious leaders. And so they were more determined than ever that they would fulfill the plans that they had made a couple of years before this, that they would kill Christ, that they would murder Jesus. But unfortunately, it was bad timing for them. This was the Passion Week, or rather the Passover Week. And uh, in the celebration of Passover, the leadership thought that this is not a very good time to try to take Jesus because he had been so richly welcomed into Jerusalem So the timing was bad for them, but what they didn't know is that it was God's time. That there was another Passover lamb to be killed. And this Passover lamb would be killed with the thousands that were killed at the same time in Jerusalem. So they couldn't overrule God's timing. And so they were presented with an unexpected gift when Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples, offered to betray him and just hand him over. And that offer was too good for them to pass up. And so that set in motion an illegal arrest and a clandestine trial, a mock, uh, it's mockery of justice. And they convicted him falsely of blasphemy. And that illegal arrest finally led to another trial before Pilate. And so we find ourselves here in chapter 27, where Jesus has been declared innocent multiple times and yet still condemned to the death of the cross. Oh, you remember that Pilate tried to release him by devising a scheme, a scheme that backfired on him. He thought that if he could choose a a terrible criminal and offer him to the Jews instead of Jesus, that the Jews would gladly accept that and let Jesus go free, but that didn't work. So he offered up Barabbas, a criminal, a murderer, but instead they chose Jesus to be crucified. So we read here that Pilate delivered Jesus to death. And I think it's interesting for us to note that his death wasn't simple. Usually an order of execution would come down and everybody would just go about their business methodically. Uh, they would treat the prisoner as they normally would. The criminal would go to the cross. They'd nail, or they'd nail him to the cross. And in a few hours or at most a few days, then all of that would be over. But this death was not going to be simple. 
The beatings were accompanied, uh, that accompanied the crucifixion were usual. That happened all of the time. But those of Jesus were also accompanied with intense hatred. I mean, there was so much contempt for Jesus that was seething under the surface that it finally just had to burst out in these gleeful acts of despicable torture. And it wasn't enough for them just to let the man die. He had to be humiliated in the worst of ways. And that started all the way back in the Jewish trial. And it would continue until he took his very last breath on the cross. He was struck in the face. He was beaten on the head. Remember how they put a covering over his face and they mocked his claim of prophecy. And they said, prophesy unto us, who is it that struck you? Could you imagine a prisoner being treated that way today? I mean, compared to the numbers of men and women that are on death row in our country today, there are very few executions And most people are just really concerned that a murderer, someone who's brutally murdered someone, would would have to suffer for maybe five minutes in his execution. But it wasn't that way with Jesus. And we would never, ever hear of taunting a prisoner before he died. But not with Jesus. From the first to the last, they were determined that the innocent Son of God should endure the very worst that they could inflict upon him, and that he would be cognizant of their hatred right down to the very last minute. So there was no compassion on him. There was no mercy of any kind. He was taunted until he took that very last breath. Now, from our text, I'd like you to notice first today the scourging of Jesus. This was part of the preparation of the cross, Verse 26 tells us that Pilate had Jesus scourged, and that, again, that's a normal thing for criminals. Uh, There's no sympathy for them, and that's part of Rome's signal to show people that they were not to mess with them. Scourging was normal for criminals, but it wasn't mandatory. And there wasn't really any reason for Pilate to inflict more suffering on Jesus when very clearly he said before that he was innocent. Pilate was convinced of that. The only reason that he would do this is to hasten the death of the crucifixion because crucifixion could take hours and hours and even days if the person to be crucified wasn't already near death when he was put on the cross. And we might look at that scourging for just a moment, just maybe to get a little bit of insight into how brutal that it was. It helps us to better understand what takes place in verse number 32 if we know the condition that Jesus was in before verse number 35. And so we'll look at this scourging for just a minute. Uh, The English word here, scourge, is the Greek word phragello, which is the same word from which we get flagellate. And a scourge is to whip with a whip that is a special instrument that's used to inflict intense pain. The whip was more like what we would call a cat of nine tails. It was a a whip with several leather straps that were at the end, and attached to the ends of those leather straps were sharp pieces of metal and bone. And the lashing was applied with skilled hands. I mean, the person who used that was really an artist at this. He was expert in how to lay down those lashes to inflict as much pain as he possibly could. And each of those leather extensions with the metal and the bone would catch a piece of flesh as it went down like a fish hook. And it would catch that flesh and as he pulled back the whip, it would strip out long pieces of flesh as it came back to him. 
And the best of these torturers knew how to use that whip to twist it just a little bit so it reach around to, to the chest area and also to the tender parts of the stomach. And as it did, he'd pull that whip back and more and more of that flesh would come out. And when he laid those stripes down, all of those strips went down at the same time and there's a wide swath that comes out of flesh and, 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 and uh, the matter of the body is pulled out and the back is severely exposed and even the internal organ sometimes, even bone could be, bare bones could be exposed in the beating. Jews also used to whip people, but they had a limit on the number of times that they could strike someone. I think it's interesting to read in the laws of Moses what God said about how many times that a person could be beaten with a lash, with a whip. And we need not think that God is any stranger to punishment for sin, crimes, because God says that should be done. And this is what the Scripture says, Deuteronomy 25, if there be a controversy between men and they come into judgment, that the judges may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And it shall be if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten, that the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten before his face according to his fault by a certain number. Forty stripes he may give him and not exceed, lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes, then thy brother should seem vile unto thee. By the time of Jesus, the Pharisees were so concerned about the letter of the law that they had reduced the number of times that someone could be beaten to 39 stripes. Not 40, 39, lest by mistake that they should put down 41, and they would break the law. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24, the Jews five times received I 40 stripes, save one. No doubt Paul was unjustly beaten when he was guilty of really nothing more than preaching the gospel of Christ. And those who beat him were so concerned that they did everything right, that they withdrew that last lash, the 40 that they would like to give, and they beat him five times with 39 stripes. Well, the Jews had their restrictions, but the Romans had none. And they would continue the beating until the internal organs were exposed. And it wasn't unheard of that a prisoner could be beaten to death and never actually make it to the cross. And that's what they did to Jesus. Only they couldn't beat him to death. He wasn't going to die of that beating. Although they did lay down many stripes on him, Jesus was in control of his life. And then I might also mention who it was that beat Jesus. Here we read in Scripture, or we understand that it's Roman soldiers. And we call them Roman soldiers, and they were insofar as they were a part of Rome's army. But these men aren't actually Romans, and by that I mean they're not Italians. Because what Rome did was to conscript people out of the different company countries that they conquered to serve in the military... And many of them were glad to do that because Rome paid a fairly good wage. So these aren't Italians that were beating Jesus. Now, interestingly, though Rome did conscript out of the different countries, one that they didn't, one country that they didn't was Israel. There were no Jews that were compelled to serve in the Roman army. So there are no Jews among these people that are laying down the stripes on Jesus at this time. So who are they? Well, they're not Italians, as I said. Most likely, they're actually Syrians. 
the Romans needed people that could speak the language of the people that they conquered. And so they spoke Aramaic at that time, and the Syrians could, would speak Aramaic. And so they would be able to serve Rome better in that way. And so that kind of adds a different dynamic, a whole new dynamic to the sufferings of Jesus because the people that beat him were traditional enemies of the Jews. That goes back 14 centuries, all the way back to the time of the conquest of Canaan and even beyond. It goes through the time of the kings that we read about in the Old Testament as the Syrians and the Jews were always enemies of one another. And that just sort of adds this new dynamic to it that these men beat a Jew, which they would gladly do, and they would probably give him more beatings than they would anybody else because they liked to do that. They wanted to inflict the pain, and they had no conscience about it whatsoever. So there's this natural hostility that Syrians had towards Jews. They didn't really know who Jesus was. They, they'd not seen his ministry in Galilee, and they weren't there at the temple and saw what Jesus did there. That wasn't their business to be there. They treated him like another prisoner, like another criminal, and as I said, even worse, because it appears that Jesus is a terribly hated person even by his own people. And that reminds us of people today, people that don't know Christ. They have no thoughts about morality. There are no thoughts of decency. There's no, no sense of accountability to the God that's made us. Oh, people are just, they just have their, they have their own code of conduct. The own, their own code that they live by, and that code is their baser instincts. There's a little bit little bit, little, very little bit of compassion. There's, there's only a sense of satisfying their purent desires. And I think as we go through the story, we have to remember there are all kinds of different people that came in contact with Jesus and at the time of the crucifixion. There are soldiers, there are thieves, there are passers-by, just bystanders that are watching. And then there's a whole crowd that wanted to kill him. All kinds of different people that are there at the crucifixion, even chief priests and elders that are religious leaders. So the soldiers are the ones that inflicted the scourging, and these are actually men that are trained in acts of cruelty. And perhaps because Jesus was that notable prisoner and hated Jew, they wanted to make the beating worse than they would on others. And so we see that when we get down to verse number 32, that Jesus was so badly beaten, he couldn't carry his cross. Well, next in the preparation is the scorning of Jesus. It's not enough to let the prisoner die. Jesus was treated differently at this point. There's an effort made to humiliate him in every way possible. Now, before we look at that part, we need to be reminded of where Jesus was before he was born in Bethlehem. Where was he? Well, he was the king of heaven, wasn't he? He was the king of the universe, Angels bowed before him. All of heaven adored him. With just a snap of the fingers or a spoken word, all subjects fall at his feet. And we got a little taste of that, didn't we? That was in the garden when Jesus spoke those powerful words and he said, I am he. And the Bible says that they all, they all fell backwards to the ground. Oh, we've seen a little bit of that how that Jesus has the power to do it. Paul wrote about it that in his condescension, he was in the form of God, which means he was of the nature and the essence of God. But now he's become a man and he's scorned 
And his kingship has been made a mockery. And of course, they understood, misunderstood his kingship. And they turned all of that around to make it an object of ridicule. And here it says that the soldiers took Jesus. They took him to the common hall. It's called the Praetorium in Mark. And, and, Mark, and uh, that's a part of Pilate's palace. And there they took him and they stripped him of all of his clothing. That was the first time that they stripped him. They would do it again, then a third time, so that when Jesus hung on the cross, he was completely naked. And so they they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him. And that wasn't a silk robe that they put on him. It was actually the rough outer cape that a soldier wore. The capes were normally red, but in the Gospel of Mark, it tells us that that cape had faded to just about a purple color, and... uh, that was really more appropriate to match the clothes that are worn by kings. Obviously, that's just another mocking gesture because they heard Jesus claim to be a king. Even a placard, as we'll see in the next sermons, was put up over his head that said that he was the king of the Jews. And then we think for a moment what it must have been like when they stripped those clothes away. The fabric had mingled in with his flesh that was torn in the beating. In the heat, the blood had started to coagulate. And when they pulled those clothes off, they ripped scabs that had freshly formed. Now, if you've ever changed a bandage after a surgery, you have a little bit of a sense of this. You you do it very carefully, and you do it slowly. But they ripped it away. And as they did, they just pulled more of that flesh out. And then they replaced his clothes with that rough outer garment, probably something made of like prickly horse hair and how that would have stuck into those open wounds. And then in verse 29, it says they made a crown of thorns. In their pockets were coins that had Caesar's image on them. And if you looked at one of those coins, a first century coin, there would you see Caesar with a wreath around his head as a crown. And in a mocking gesture again, they made a crown of thorns And they made that for Jesus, and they put it on his head. And of course, again, it's all blasphemy because they made him look like an image of Caesar when he was the image of the invisible God. There's much speculation about those thorns. Uh, There are many prickly plants in Israel that could have been used to make the crown of thorns. I know that at the popular tourist place where they say that Jesus was crucified, at least as late as the 19th century, they said that there were long thorns, plants growing on the top of that hill with long thorns. Now, I've been to that place, and I never actually saw those long thorns, but I am told that as late as the 19th century, they were there. On the Lord's Supper night, I I suggested that the crown of thorns might have been made from the Shittim tree, which is the same tree that was used to make the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know if that's true, but I do know this. They fashioned this makeshift crown of thorns and they pressed it down into his head. And those thorns are a, are a symbol of a curse that's put on the earth. You remember Genesis records how that God put a curse on the earth that he said the earth is going to yield thorns and thistles and Adam's sin caused that so that plants or crops that farmers grow don't grow so easily anymore. Not like they did in the Garden of Eden, but they always have to contend with the thorns and the thistles and the weeds and all of that. There's a curse that's been put all over the whole earth, and that curse is 
symbolized right here in the crown that's put on Jesus because he was made a curse for us. So God's irony is that the one who bore the crown of thorns is the one who will lift that curse from the earth and also from all of us who are believers in him. So they made that crown of thorns and they pushed it already into his already beaten and bruised head. And then they further humiliated by, humiliating by putting a scepter in his hand. A scepter is a sign of power and authority. And so they took a reed and they fashioned a scepter and they thrust that into his hand. And do you notice anything that's absent as we go through this? Where, where do we find the pleadings of the prisoner? Where do we find any complaints that they should stop or that he should cry out and he would insist that they wouldn't treat him so badly? We can't imagine what it must have been like to have that first, that first lash from the whip. We can't imagine what that would be like. But to have that done over and over and over against an already bloody back, and yet there's no pleading here, there's no crying out. Oh, he'd already told his disciples that he could call legions of angels to set him free if he wanted. And so why should he complain against these puny soldiers not to beat him any longer? He could have taken care of this problem very easily, but he took the beating. He could have said, destroy, and it'd all be over. But because of scriptures, because what scripture said about him... He has to fulfill scripture and it said that he be led as a sheep to the slaughter as a a sheep before his shears is dumb. And dumb means that he cannot speak or as if he cannot speak. But he can speak, can he? Of course he can. And Peter reflected that when he said when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he was threatened, he did not threaten. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. So silently Jesus took that humiliation So they handed him that reed, they bowed before him, and they mocked him, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. But they're still not done with him. They begin to spit on him. Well, none of us will take being spit on. I mean, that's that's not just mocking him as a king. Now they're mocking his manhood. Now now they're saying, "You're, You're completely defenseless against us. We'll spit on you if we like. So they took the dignity of being a man away from him by spitting in his face and letting that awful saliva run down his face and into his mouth and into his beard. The humiliation was just above and beyond. They were not going to let him die with a shred of dignity. Paul reflects this in the Philippians passage when he says, "...in being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." So the reed was in his hand, and then they took that pretend scepter away, and they struck him on the head with it. Can you hear them doing that? Can you imagine them doing this, striking his head and driving the thorns deeper into his brow? And they kept taunting him. They kept scorning him him as they went. And here, we're not even yet to the cross. We're, We're not even at the cross yet, and yet the meanness of his death is too much for us to bear. To think what they did to him. And then of all things, after all of this, they decided they wanted their robe back. Verse number 31, and after that they had mocked him. They took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And so after those rough fibers had settled into the wounds, then they ripped it away again. 
And they put his own bloody clothes back on him. So what they're doing here is they're prolonging the agony as long as they could. Oh, he could have been scourged and just sent to the cross and that would be the end of it. But no, he has to go through all of this suffering and humiliation. He has to have all of this that takes place in between and it was not going to be over quickly. Well, it seems now they have done enough. Surely they have made their point and had their fun, but it's not over. He has to be crucified, so he has to get from point A where he was to point B where he's going to be crucified. There he is in Pilate's Pilate's Hall, the Praetorium. That's not a place of execution. They don't execute people in Pilate's Judgment Hall. So they had to lead him out. He has to be taken outside of the city. There was a distance to be traveled. And so as another dagger into the dignity of a prisoner, they made him carry his own instrument of death. They laid the cross on the prisoner and made him carry his cross to the place of execution. I mean, that's like a hangman having to build his own gallows. It's like a man sitting in an electric chair having to flip the switch himself. Or somebody ready for the lethal injection. He pushes the button that lets the poisonous fluids pour through his veins. Only, of course, this is much worse than that because we're talking about a heavy cross. He's already beaten severely and he has to carry that cross through the streets to the humiliation, the mocking of the entire crowd as he passes by. Well, on this day, it was too much. He couldn't carry it. He was beaten too badly, and he might have died under the strain of getting to Calvary. And some prisoners did die doing this before the nails ever got driven into the cross. But that's not going to happen here, because God won't let him die before the cross. Jesus was not about to surrender his life before he got up on that cross, because the scripture said he has to be lifted up. Even as Moses was lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus was going to get there. He will be nailed to the cross and lifted there to die. Well, that brings me now to the close of the preparations. And that is thirdly, the support for Jesus. Verse 32, and as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. Let me take you, if you would, to Mark chapter 15. If you'll take your Bible and turn there, there are just a couple of details that I'd like for us to pick up here. Uh, This is at the end of Mark's gospel, near the end. Two verses here that I want you to see. Mark 15, verses 20 and 21. Same story, just a little more detail. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compel one, Simon of Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Here is where we may find the first good sign in the story of the cross. Now, we do know this, that what happened on this day is the very best thing that's happened to all of mankind. And this is just typical of Jesus, that he took the very worst in order that we might have the very best. I mean, that's, that's seen throughout the scriptures. That's the kind of person that Jesus was. Now, perhaps, though, the first good thing could have been Barabbas. We don't really know this for sure. I don't think there's any good evidence for it, but there are many people who believe that through the experience that Barabbas went through, that that physical substitution that we talked about last week, that Barabbas became a Christian. 
as I said, there's no good evidence for that. Some people just like to enhance the story somewhat as if it needed to be enhanced. So we don't really know about Barabbas. But I think that there may be good evidence that here, this man Simon of Cyrene actually did become a Christian. Now first, before we get to that, remember that Jesus, after the scourging, was a bloody mess... The Bible does not actually say that he stumbled and fell beneath the load as many songs and many sermons say. But I think that we could probably infer that, that the beating was so bad he couldn't carry his cross. And he started out and uh, probably the soldiers tried to encourage him and try to beat him some more to try to get some more out of him to get him to carry the cross. But he simply could not do that. So what they did was they grabbed a fellow that was passing by. He was a man of Cyrene. That's in modern-day Libya. He was probably there in Jerusalem for Passover, as Jews would come from everywhere around the empire. I mean, there was a Jewish, sizable Jewish population in Cyrene at the time. And we find in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost that the language of the Cyrenians was a language that was spoken in the many tongues in that chapter. So, most likely, here is a man who is in Jerusalem because of the Passover time. He's not native to the area. And so, he probably was not one that had been following along and doing what the rest of the crowd was doing. Everybody else was taunting Jesus. This doesn't say that he did. But they grabbed this man and they told him to pick up the cross. Roman soldiers would never help. No matter how many times that Jesus fell, Roman soldiers were not going to pick up a prisoner's cross and help him to get to the place of execution. So they ordered this man, compelled him to pick up the cross and and carry it there to where he would be crucified. Mark says that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why do we need to know that? Why, Why would Mark even give us this kind of information? Well, it appears that when Mark wrote his gospel, that he added this because people knew Alexander and Rufus, that the people he was writing to would recognize these names. And they were very common names at the time. But isn't there, could there be something more than meets the eye here? It, it, did, did Mark add this name, these names, because Christians would know who he was talking about? Now, it is generally agreed that Mark's gospel was written to a Roman audience. In the last part of the book of Romans, Paul also mentions a man by the name of Rufus, probably somebody that he'd never met, but well known to the Christian community that was in Rome. And so it seems possible that Alexander and Rufus were Christians. Romans and Mark were actually written about the same time. And is it any coincidence that both Mark and Paul would mention a man by the name of Rufus? Well, what that would indicate then is that this man Simon of Cyrene had become a believer, and his sons were believers. Now, the crucifixion happened some 30 years after, or before rather, Mark and Romans were written. So it's very possible, we think, that that Alexander and Rufus, being sons of, of this man Simon, he was a Christian, and he raised his sons to know the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, let me add another comment to that, that out of this seemingly happenstance meeting on the road to the crucifixion, a man from far away in Libya met the Savior. It's quite interesting that when Paul wrote Romans that he made this comment about Rufus. He said, salute Rufus, chosen 
in the Lord. Folks, I know this doctrine too well. Not to get cold chills when I read something like that. God does not have accidental children. Nobody ever got saved by accident. Now how strange it is that Roman soldiers are the ones that introduced this man to Jesus, to the God that actually chose him and his sons to eternal life. Did you know that there aren't any accidental meetings with Jesus? And this is a good place for me to close the message today. Have you ever thought about why you are a Christian and others aren't? Have you ever thought why there are so many Roman soldier types in the world that just die and go to hell? And you're going to die and go to heaven? You ever think why that's true? Do you ever think why there are people that never give a second thought to Jesus but to blaspheme his name? To use his name as a curse word? That's all they ever think about Christ. But you're different? Or you revere the name of Jesus Christ? He means so much to you? Have you ever thought about why that's so? You ever thought about why you are who you are? That you are a believer and those people aren't? Have you ever thought about this? As Shelley said something to me the other day that kind of struck me. Would you ever think that you'd be sitting in a hospital room and you would ask people around you, would you like to go with me and pray? And they hear that and they're very, very uncomfortable that you would even ask them such a thing. You ever thought about why you're different? And then I'd ask you another question. Have you ever thought about why you know Christ? And other people that hear the very same information about him as you hear, why they don't believe in Christ? Have you ever thought why that's true? Why you? And not somebody else who hears the very same thing? And then I'll ask another question. If you're not a Christian... Have you ever thought why you would be here in the first place? Why would you be in this church today to hear a sermon on the crucifixion of Christ or the preliminaries to the crucifixion? Why would you even be here? Or for someone, since our messages go out on the internet and we get comments from people around the world that have heard the messages here at Berean, for somebody that would hear it there, would they think, why am I hearing this message when people all around me have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? You ever think about things like that? There aren't any accidental meetings with Jesus. You can meet him as the Roman soldiers did. Or you can meet him as Simon the Cyrenian did. Neither of those meetings are by chance. Now thank God for Jesus Christ. I can't compete with Hollywood for graphic descriptions about crucifixions. But I can give you something better. I can tell you why that Jesus was on the cross. I can tell you that he suffered and died for sinners. I can tell you things that Hollywood won't tell you. That without Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are as condemned as Jesus Christ was on that day. And you're going to die as surely as he died. And you're going to come out of your grave at some time, but you won't go to the same place where Jesus went. But you'll end up in hell forever. Hollywood won't tell you that part of the story, do they? And that's why Mel Gibson's film is not the greatest evangelistic tool that the world has ever seen. 
Now, I encourage you to read the Bible, read the Scriptures. Here is what you find, where you find, who Jesus is, what he did, and how he can save your soul. So I'd ask you one last question. Why would you suffer in hell for sin when Christ has died for it? Why would you do that? doesn't make very much sense. Don't despise, and pardon me, good sense is not the way that you get saved. Don't misinterpret my words. Don't despise what Jesus did on that day. Trust him. Surrender to him. Surrender his almighty power, and you'll be saved from the hell that he suffered on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and we thank you again for Jesus what terrible suffering that he went through, and we, we really can't explain all of that. There's no way that I could make that real to people except that the Holy Spirit should open eyes to the truth. Lord, we do pray that you would speak to people today. For us as Christians, and most of us I think here are, I just ask you, Lord, that you would remind us again of what you did for us, how much you suffered for us, and then how little that we do in return when it seems so difficult for us to serve you and just to act like Christians should act, to go to church, to live every day as we should live, to give your word to other people. It's so difficult for us. And we don't understand when we look at the cross how that we could not be so grateful that we would not want to lift up your name every day to every person. And we're all guilty of that failure. And then, Lord, for someone who's here who hasn't trusted you as Savior... My words are not to convince people. I don't have the ability to convince people to be saved. I just ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to the heart. That's the only way they'll ever see this. Bless us, Lord, in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I ask you a lot of have you ever questions. Maybe I should ask this one too. Have you ever thought why God would have us preach the cross to people that are already saved? Why does God have us do that? I mean, we see it over over and over in Scripture and every Sunday in churches all across the country. The gospel of Christ and the cross of Christ is preached to save people. I mean, when we come to church, that's actually what church is. It's the gathering of saved people. We have lost people in the congregation. I'm not going to say as an accident, but the church wasn't built for lost people. It's built for people who already know the Lord. So why do we preach the cross and these things to people that already know the Lord? Well, I think that it has to be that we need to reflect on this and see how awful that sacrifice was, how awful the suffering was, and how much that Christ did for us, and keep being reminded of that so that we know that we have to live our lives every day according to that sacrifice. If he's willing to give so much for us, why aren't we willing to do something for him and live as his people? Why aren't we trying to get rid of sin in our lives? Why aren't we being faithful to... Christ in the way that we should be. He was always faithful to us. He didn't retreat from the cross. He went. Could have escaped it, but he went. As I mentioned, Peter said when he was reviled, he didn't revile again. When he suffered, he threatened not. He went. And that's what we ought to do. We ought to go. Stay with him. Stick with him. Be the kind of Christians that we should be. Be thankful for the cross. 
And we're going to be preaching the cross here for the next few weeks. Many different aspects of it. And that's the purpose. Christians need to be reminded. And then go tell somebody else about what you know. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.